Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team. Overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Louis Letizia has asked us to review Capricorn One. Released June 2nd, 1978, it was written and directed by Peter Hyams and released by Warner Brothers. On July 20th, 1969, NASA's Apollo 11 flight touched down on the surface of the Earth's moon, and American astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first human beings to set foot on its surface, achieving, probably still, the most amazing feat we have accomplished as a species, and winning the space race with Russia. Buzz Aldrin's second comes right after first. Predictably, conspiracies arose overnight, suggesting the whole thing had been faked, potentially by Stanley Kubrick himself, for political reasons. And while working for CBS on the broadcasts of the Apollo missions, a young Peter Hyams started weaving the story of a hoax moon landing. Whenever he watched a news broadcast with his parents, they would consistently mistake obvious reenactments for original footage, and it occurred to Hyams just how easy it would be to convince the country we had accomplished this feat. Okay, so just so I understand here, so he, he he's saying his parents were watching reenactments? Yeah, like they would show, this is how we're going to put the thing down on the surface of the moon, and then this is how it will open, and this is how they will come down the stairs, and they'd be like, wow, that's crazy that they got this footage. And it's like, no, this is, they're showing okay. us how they're going to do it so when they get to the moon. People were just too stupid to realize yeah. what they were looking at. Yeah. I And I'm not judging, because I think the same thing is true now. Right, Especially exactly. with yeah. how much we can fake everything. And but. it reminded me of, like, when I would watch Unsolved Mysteries as a kid, and they would, like, reenact, like, whatever murder scene and stuff like that. And I bet there were people who watched that and were just like, "This is this real? <laughs> yeah. Is that really the girl? I bet I could find that guy. I know that guy. I saw his face real good. He was in the last episode, too. It's the same killer. (laughs) I think he was in that Betty Crocker commercial. (laughs) Oh, my God. He finished the script in 1972, but American trust in their government was still too strong to even consider it. It wasn't until after the Watergate scandal that studios came calling for details on the story. By then, 28% of Americans suspected the moon landing had been fabricated. What? 28%. More than one in four. Hyams took a meeting with Sir Lou Grade, who is exactly the right producer for this kind of a project, and the deal was made in just five minutes with a projected budget of $4.8 million. The slim budget meant the production relied heavily on the cooperation of NASA, an organization which ostensibly plays the villain of the film, but they were very generous with their time and equipment, even sparing a prototype Apollo lunar module for use as a prop. That seems like a bad idea. Right? But they were just trying to be friendly. Yeah, but like I think you're reinforcing the you know already you know. I, th- the, I think the, they the bad knew... sentiment that the, the the public had about the moon landing. I think that they knew that these kinds of movies draw people into the space program, and any publicity is good publicity for NASA. Yeah. Never a straight answer. That's what that stands for. <laughs> I feel like it's like um, which which movie was it that that the military put so many uh airplanes in 
I know Pearl Harbor got a lot of uh, government cooperation. No, 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 the one that we covered. That... Oh, Final Countdown. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Final Countdown. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. a and recruitment they tool. That... It's time travel. Like what? And at the time, twenty-eight <laughs> percent of Americans believed there were time-traveling vortexes on the high yeah. seas. There aren't. I joined the no. Navy for this. Now it's down to just <laughs> Richard. <laughs> Because of a delay to the American release of Superman, Capricorn unexpectedly had theaters to itself for a big chunk of June of 77, and it became the year's most successful independent release. The film got two novelizations, including one by spy novelist Ken Follett, after whom a character in Hopscotch was named last season, because the supporting cast were all named after spy novelists. Follett's book fleshes out the relationship between Caulfield and Drinkwater much more, and closes with Caulfield landing a job at CBS after his firing from a paper. In 2001, the film was considered for potential new life as a Fox television series, and as recently as 2008, plans had emerged for a film remake with director John Moore attached. But since then, the projects have gone mostly silent. That John Moore? Yeah, your, your buddy. Oh. From uh, Max Payne? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, it was Max Payne. I think he might have switched gears to the Die Hard sequel that he did. Mm-hmm. In 2020, footage from the film was spliced into a fake WikiLeaks post intending to prove that the moon landings were faked, but after the video went viral, WikiLeaks denied any involvement in its release. I certainly think that there's potential for a story idea, um, but less focused on NASA and more focused on like a Musk-like character who's trying to get publicity into his company by faking oh, sure, a, yeah. a landing on a planet. I can see that. Yeah, that makes, I think it makes more sense if it's not a government funded that it's, yeah mm. that it's private sector yeah. and they're trying to to raise funds and stuff yeah um, this was a very popular uh segment that we've done before dumbest imdb trivia point oh. so i'm gonna go ahead and read that now often cited as paul rudd's favorite telly savalas performance <laughs> often, often <laughs> how often is this cited as that how often is Paul Rudd asked about Telly Savalas? <laughs> what is your favorite Telly Savalas? That, that had to be like the last question on Hot Ones. It was just like, <laughs> oh my God, uh, Capricorn one, I guess. Oh, the milk's just making it worse. We start with a title announcing that it is January 4th. A disembodied voice sets the scene. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Paul Cunningham, Capricorn Control. The time is three minutes after six Eastern Daylight Time. We're coming up on T minus 32 minutes, 21 seconds. Mark. Uh, we get this, uh, like, just classic Goldsmith score. Right. And I'm like, as soon as I hear it, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Two of Richard's favorite things, a Saturn V rocket on a launch pad <laughs> and, a, and Goldsmith music. Um, but uh, this opening narration, I, well, hold on, before I go further, are you going to read more of the narration or? No. Oh. Uh they start listing off what they had for breakfast. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, holy crap, that's a lot of food. I don't want to have that much food in my guts when I'm going in this yeah. space. But then I read up, and I guess astronauts do just eat whatever the hell they want yeah. while they're in medical quarantine before they go up. They mm. just say, yeah, I just, I'll just eat whatever. Because you don't know when you're going to have Earth food, if ever again. Yeah. Oh, yeah it's Uncle enough. Sam's dime. Yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of like getting your, your last, last meal, meal in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people do just get like steaks and lobsters and whatever and just go up with a full belly. It's like, a man, steak that's... sandwich and a steak sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. <laughs> we fade in on a rocket standing tall on a launch pad as the sun rises behind it. The voice introduces the three-man crew, Colonel Charles Brubaker, the command pilot, played by James Brolin, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Willis, played by Sam Waterston, and Commander John Walker, played by Orenthal James Simpson or O.J. Simpson, as he is known. 
It describes each of their breakfasts and then mentions that they are on the gantry now, boarding the capsule. Just before they climb inside, a man named Horace Grunning, or Gruning, seemingly on the verge of tears, presents them with his own personal Bible with the hope that these men will bring it to the surface of Mars. I'm assuming he got permission from NASA because any weight changes on this ship are extremely important. Yeah. Um, I'm, I was really trying to break down the religious symbolism of this film. Yeah. Uh, especially with this opening of, obviously the title is Capricorn 1 and, and Jesus right. was a Capricorn. Um, and then the present presentation of a Bible. Right. I was like, what is, is there some kind of- What about the St. Christopher medal? Yeah, St. Christopher medal. Yeah. Uh, uh, Which featured heavily in our last astronaut on a launch pad yeah. aborting the mission yeah. sequence in the ninth configuration. I know. <laughs> don't say it like I don't know. <laughs> so um, did you guys read any anything more into that? Because I really nope. couldn't I really couldn't find <laughs> anything else. I was really struggling. Like we don't go that deep on this podcast, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I was like like, well, there are three astronauts, like three wise men, no, maybe. No. No, they're no, no, it's I'm the Holy like, Trinity. Yeah. Uh, oh god, which one of them is OJ? <laughs> he's uh, Jesus. Ornithol Jesus Simpson. This particular mission is codenamed Capricorn 1, and supposedly Mars has some connection to Capricorn in astrology. Across the bay at Cape Canaveral, the crowd assembles to watch the launch. We see perpetual bad guy David Huddleston as Hollis Peeker taking his seat. Peeker is given commemorative binoculars to watch the launch and demands an additional set for his wife because he has no interest in sharing. The young man assisting him tries to gently turn down the request before announcing it will be no problem and he'll find another pair. Fanfare announces the arrival of the vice president, and he takes a seat beside Hollis Peeker. He apologizes on behalf of the president. And he asked me to personally express his regrets at being unable to attend this launch. However, there were some very pressing matters that needed his attention in Washington. Like getting reelected. NASA page Mark Hughes returns with binoculars for the vice president and the second lady. The astronauts go through the pre-fight the pre-fight checklist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, touch gloves. <laughs> uh, I was already really excited by by this cast. Like I was like, oh my it's god, great, yeah. Like, yeah. like the cast just keeps getting better. And when people start popping up later in the movie, you're like, oh yeah, I forgot that name was at the beginning of this. Why why are they in one scene of this movie? Yeah. The astronauts go through their pre-flight checklist. Gentlemen, we're ready to close the hatch. Anybody want to get out? This is your last chance. Suddenly, seconds from the launch, the hatch reopens, and a man leans in, demanding they exit the capsule and follow him immediately. This guy's like, just like, there's no time to explain. You got to come with me. There's no time to explain. I'm going to keep saying there's no time to explain, which would probably give me well, time to explain. we walk for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's no time to explain. Please follow me. Are you nuts? I said there's no time to explain. This is an emergency. Please follow me now. Back in mission control, everything seems to be proceeding as intended. Although we hear one person mention that the destruction sequence is now fully armed. Maybe that's normal. I don't know. <laughs> seems like there shouldn't be a destruction sequence. The astronauts are loaded into a NASA van at the base of the tower. The van takes them into a waiting helicopter, and it seems like they put up a bit of a fight before getting into it. Back in the bleachers at Cape Canaveral, the VP is using his binoculars to look at the asses of nearby women, and Peeker notices he's looking the wrong way. It's that big, tall, white thing over there. Can't miss it. Just as the rocket is about to launch, the flight crew are flown away in a small plane and given new outfits to change into. I'm assuming Mission Control is aware of this emergency evacuation because they would otherwise be in constant contact with the crew doing checks and monitoring their vitals remotely. Well, they set it to the test footage recordings. Yes. 
We even see a readout on the wall that lists heart rate, blood pressure, body temp, but it's all handwritten, like a projector sheet. It doesn't look like it's a live reading. The rocket launches, and all seems well. They reach second stage ignition. As the watching audience vacates the bleachers, Peeker bugs the VP about NASA funding and hopes the president will appreciate the great public interest in space travel. Hollis, there are a number of people who feel that we have problems right here on Earth that merit our attention before we spend billions of dollars on outer space. The plane transporting the crew touches down in what looks like an abandoned Air Force base in a desert. They demand an explanation. They're led to a dilapidated hangar, but inside it is sterile and pristine. They're made to wait in a small break room, where they're eventually met by Dr. James Calloway, played by Hal Holbrook. He informs them that he had no choice in what he's about to announce. He wastes a lot of their time reminding the audience how popular the space program used to be in America, and that now nobody cares. They consider it a waste of money. You know who is at the launch today? Not the president. The vice president, that's who. The vice president and his plump wife. Gross, dude. So sorry you had to deal with the fat second lady. He goes on to she's say that... She's not even fat. No, yeah. she's not at all. He goes on to say that the president made him swear that the mission would go smoothly, and if anything goes wrong, Congress will argue for scrapping the entire program. In the months since that conversation, they encountered a whopper of a mistake. Their lowest bid equipment manufacturer, Con Amalgamate, delivered such a low quality system that it would have killed the entire crew in just a few weeks, and there wasn't time to replace it without asking Congress for more money. Do you guys recall the last time Con Amalgamate was the villain corporation of a Peter Hyams film? I'm gonna say Outland? That's right. After this point, he takes them to the next room and shows them that, as far as the public knows, the mission is still going. They walk out onto a fully decorated Martian landscape set where they intend to fake a successful mission. I get so mad. They just keep the lights on this Mars set on all yeah. the time. And These the, things are like You see it smoking, smoking yeah, yeah, the whole time. I, I, I'm, I, I don't know much about lighting equipment. Are they supposed to be like that? It's like they're not even supposed to land for months. Yeah, There's exactly. no reason this set would already be assembled. Yeah, or well, or at, at least, least not lit. Currently. Yeah, there's no no reason to light it. Yeah, I mean yes, I mean like old. There should be work lights, not yeah. set lighting. Exactly, old studio lights. Yeah, I mean obviously they'll get really really hot, but maybe maybe the room is like really refrigerated. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, and that's like I'm trying to think of what otherwise. Uh, uh, it's just a waste of energy. It's just yeah, it's just a waste of energy. And, and I, I, they just wanted it for the image. They yeah. wanted something that looked like Mars when they walked in. Right. But later on, when they're like walking through, it's still lit. I was like, "Why yeah. is this still Turn this lit?" Turn shit off, guys. We've wrapped Mars. Yeah. We're gonna draw <laughs> everyone's attention to this warehouse with our electricity bill. He tells them that all he needs for them is to act out the successful mission on this stage, and then they'll be dropped in a nearby ocean in a duplicate of the capsule for retrieval, so they can return home heroes. What if we say no? I don't know. Don't say no. It's bothering me that they're walking around this set leaving footprints in the carefully manicured yes. dust, yeah. which people are certain to scrutinize later. They give Calloway shit about the scheme, and he points out that if this doesn't happen, the program is over. Space exploration could be a dead science forever. Brubaker asks again, what if they don't help? And again, Calloway dodges the question, insisting they have to help, which Brubaker is fully capable of translating to, we will kill you. Then Calloway takes it to an even darker place. There are people out there, forces out there, who have a lot to lose. They're grown-ups. It's gotten too big, it's in the hands of grown-ups. What about our families? They're flying back from the Cape to Houston. They're all together on the plane. 
No, you're not serious. Which Brubaker is now translating to, we will kill your families. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah o- OJ gets really upset at the prospect yeah. of someone else killing his wife yeah. in this scene. Not before <laughs> I do. I don't know why the second that this came up, they didn't think, there is no option. I will not survive this. Because how how do you think that they are going to trust you mm-hmm. not to say anything why is anyone for the cooperating? rest of your life? Shouldn't shouldn't they be just shouldn't Callaway be just as worried? Shouldn't everyone be just as I, worried? I I yes. Yes, they should. And I think that it's it's especially bad for these guys cuz they're the ones who are going to be, you know, interviewed for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. on this topic. Yeah. And if they're uncomfortable now, I don't see them getting more comfortable with the idea of pretending. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I I would immediately assume that that at the end of this I'm not going to survive. Right. Uh even if you comply. Yeah, even yeah. if you comply. I don't even know why you bother to talk to them about this. Because you could easily just replace them in the spacesuits on Mars with right. three other people. Yeah, and, and just say, oops, and then, the, and the, comms are, the comms are down. We can't talk to them. But there they are, guys. <laughs> yeah. Or even better, uh, I mean, because our ast- I mean, some astronauts are famous, but not until they go to space, you know, really? Right. So I would just hire three guys, put them through astronaut training who are in on it from the beginning and say, you know, this is this is the con. Yeah. But then you you run the risk of those people telling the truth. I think Callaway should just be in one of these suits. It should be the only three people that they trusted with the secret playing the three astronauts. Which would have to be like those same three people or or however many people it took have to deck out this entire warehouse, right, and mm-hmm. be able to run all this film equipment. Yeah, talk about a skeleton crew. They really can't involve a lot of people. Yeah, no, but the, but you have to be able to. You have to understand, you know, the broadcast systems. You have to understand the cameras. You have to understand lighting equipment. You have to understand how to do set design. Yeah, this is all below the line stuff. There's no way they're going to find these people and get them to keep their mouths shut. If people are like leaking the Five Nights at Freddy's trailer. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's the that's the funniest part I think of people who have these ideas of these like deep uh, state conspiracies. It's like it's I like, bet a thousand people can keep a secret. Nobody, nobody can keep their mouth shut about anything. And you think that lots of people are 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 all very coordinated at this? Yeah, it's not happening. Then Callaway gets even more explicit and admits that there is a bomb on the plane with their families, and if they don't agree and shoot the scene, that the plane will blow up. But this plane isn't going to be in the air for five months. You have a lot of time to change your mind mm-hmm. where the, the families can separate. But, but I guess they'll just seek them out with snipers or whatever. Yeah, I mean, just just, just letting them know you, your family is at stake. And <laughs> that won't be suspicious at all. If any of you decides not to go through with this mission, you'll all die on the way back. And then mysteriously, your families will be killed off <laughs> one at a time by snipers. The conspiracy is already too big. It's beyond either of their controls. We cut to the press outside the home of one of the astronauts, and two reporters, Robert Caulfield, played by Elliot Gould, and Judy Drinkwater, played by Karen Black, are setting up. Caulfield is mostly complaining about how boring his job is and how he wishes he had better company, and she tells him that he needs to work on his flirting. Brubaker's wife Kay, played by Brenda Vaccaro, steps out of the house and is approached by all of the reporters. She doesn't have much to say, but it sounds like she's oblivious to the reality, which makes sense. She wouldn't know what's going on. We cut to mission control, and one of the technicians, Elliot, has a problem with his readout. 
He tells his boss that he noticed the information he's receiving regarding the crew's vitals is coming in in advance of the ship's broadcasts, like the information is coming from two separate locations, one much closer than the other. His boss tells Elliot that he's using a faulty machine and everything is okay. I mean, I'm trying to think about this, like... Did they launch something into space? Yeah, there is a shuttle yeah. on the way. It should be just broadcasting the vitals the way it normally would have yeah, from was, a recording. Yeah, exactly. I, I would have sent up the thing and just have it set on broadcast. Yeah. We cut to an apartment complex that night, and Elliot pours through more official NASA documents to do some calculations on his own. We cut forward four and a half months to May 14th. Mission Control is bringing in the families of the astronauts to witness firsthand the landing of the mission's crew on the Martian surface. Based on Callaway's estimate, the ship should already have exploded by now, so I'm not sure how this info is being broadcast to the local technicians who aren't in on the hoax. They count down from 10 to report the official Martian landing. We hear the voice of Brubaker, supposedly from onboard Capricorn 1, claiming to have landed safely. We cut all over Los Angeles to see people celebrate this momentous occasion, and back in Peeker's office, he gets a call from the vice president. He's clearly offended at still having been handed off to second in command. Asshole. Elliot, with the faulty console, goes to speak with Calloway about his discoveries. Calloway simply promises to have the console repaired ASAP instead of hearing the man's theories. On the big screen at Mission Control, we can see the landing craft from the same angle as those first steps on the moon in 1969. We see Brubaker take steps down to the surface. I take this step in the journey of peace for all mankind. Inexplicably, this is being shot and edited live, so a slow motion effect is added just as Brubaker leaps from the ladder, much in the same way as the coin toss at the end of IBC's yeah. live performance of Scrooge. You cannot include slow motion footage in a live broadcast. I mean, I guess if you have a time delay on the broadcast. But, but it's like, just shoot this months ago. Right. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. People watch the broadcast on TV all over the world. The next astronaut, Walker, gets another slow-mo treatment. They plant an American flag on the surface. A pre-recorded message from the president is sent to them. The president says that they're 20 light minutes away, meaning that technically they landed on the surface 20 minutes ago, and there was no need for a fake live broadcast. Mm -hmm. We cut to the astronauts on the Martian set where Brubaker reads another prepared monologue. We cut to a bar later that night, and Elliot speaks with Elliot, meaning technician Elliot speaks with Elliot Gould, Robert Caulfield. The technician is clearly troubled by his discoveries at work. <laughs> it's funny because the actor's name is for Elliot is Robert. Is it really? Yeah. No way. Is it yeah. really? That's funny. So <laughs> Elliot playing Robert is talking to Robert playing Elliot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he divulges his problems to Caulfield about the response of the higher-ups regarding his faulty console and seeming annoyed by his going above and beyond to investigate the problem. He starts to tell Caulfield that the reading he received could not have been coming from the Martian ship, but then Caulfield is pulled away to answer a phone call. It's a bad signal, and he doesn't seem to have anything helpful to say, but when he gets back to the pool table, Elliot is gone. Back on the Mars set, Brubaker admits to his crew that he's not going to go along with this plan because he can't lie to his family. The other astronauts just want him to go with it because all their families will pay the price, and suddenly it's Brubaker against his own friends. A man, sitting up in the control booth, listens in on the conversation and reports to the people in charge that Brubaker may present a problem for them tomorrow. We cut to the desk of Robert Caulfield, and he's trying to track down Elliot Witter, but every line to the man is coming back out of order. A little over a month later, July 22nd, 
The families of the crew are gathered again at Mission Control for a phone call with the crew. Elliot's console is wrapped up in a tarp. The wives all check in with their husbands. You sound so close. It's hard to believe you really are that far away in space. It's hard for me to believe it, too. Calloway seems uncomfortable with Willis's inside joke. Uh, I know it was. they should be weightless. Right. Uh, and, and they have no indication. Well, they're kind of strapped into chairs in a yeah. really tight compartment. That's the other thing that really bothers me, is that you spent months in a seated position in a capsule. Like, there's no way that a Mars mission would be in, in, a, in a capsule like this. You think this. it would have a, a 2001 d- uh, circular? N- nothing like that, but even the Apollo missions, like, had room. More room than this? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Apollo 13 looked pretty tight. It's tight, but they, but they were going. They were moving around. That's like, true. Yeah, we see we see a lot of Tom Hanks floating. Yeah. Kay tries to talk to Brubaker or Brew, and he is more reserved than usual. Up in the booth, people keep their fingers on the button, ready to cut the connection the second Brubaker appears to veer off script. Kay tells him that his son Charles won an award at school for a composition, and she offers to read it to him. The poem is about what a great man his father is, and Brubaker is obviously moved to tears by the undeserved praise. The other astronauts also seem affected by his words. Brubaker tells Kay that he has an important message, and the man in the booth prepares to cut the transmission, but all he says is he loves her and his son. He promises to take his son Charles back to Yosemite like they did last summer, and Kay looks confused by the comment. Interesting that he doesn't care about his daughter, though. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I love you and I love our son. Anyway, (laughs) gotta go. I think you can read between the lines. (laughs) And the rest. (laughs) Obviously, this is because they didn't go on any such trip, but it's an innocent enough statement as to not warrant cutting the transmission, and it's a way to communicate to Kay that this is artificial in some way, and not to trust what's happening. The next day, Caulfield pulls up to Elliot Witter's place and bangs on the door, but a woman answers. Turns out the place has been rented out since Elliot's disappearance, maybe? Caulfield has been here many times before and is certain he's at the right apartment. She tries to make Caulfield feel insane and claims that she's just here cleaning her oven. She doesn't know who he's talking about. He barges past her into the place and finds everything fully redecorated. He even sees a magazine with her name and address on the table. She threatens to report him to the police and we see him driving away. As he comes to an intersection, the light turns red, but his brakes have been cut and he hammers on the pedal to stop the vehicle, but it continues accelerating beyond his control. He pulls every lever he has in the car, but continues to speed faster and faster until he's sent careening over an open drawbridge. Yeah, I was like, dude, turn off your engine. But then when he tries that, the ignition just comes right out. I was like, oh, well, never mind. Proceed. (laughs) Proceed Proceed to your death. (laughs) This particular crash was actually reused later in an episode of The Fall Guy. I'm I'm very curious uh, because uh, that's a lot of work to do in a car with a very short amount of time to do it. Right, yeah. to, To cut the manual brake. To cut the, the, Emergency the hydraulic brake. brakes, to, to sabotage the ignition. And then to somehow make it so that it's constantly accelerating, not right. just so that it won't stop, but that it keeps speeding up. These people work for NASA. That's true. <laughs> I mean, they are rocket scientists. <laughs> Is that why the shuttles just crash full speed into the moon? But they only know how to fake science. <laughs> they don't know how to do real yeah. science. That's why that one rocket landed right in that moon's face. <laughs> <laughs> I also heard it reported, but I find hard to believe that this is the first scene to utilize the cutting of the brakes trope to force a character to get in an accident. Really? Oh, that, yeah, that can't be. It seems impossible. This is 77 or 78? 77, I think. But 
the trivia point said that this was the first scene of a person's brakes being cut and losing control of a vehicle that way in a film. In real life, it's been happening yeah. for years. Somehow he survives the crash and swims to safety under the bridge. We cut forward another couple months to September 19th. The capsule is due to return to Earth now and be collected from the ocean. The crew are loaded onto another small plane to the capsule and informed that they have plenty of time because it should take recovery teams 90 minutes to find them. Right on cue, a technician at Mission Control lets Callaway know that the men are 200 miles off course and it could take as much as 90 minutes to collect them. Callaway pretends not to have seen this coming. If they, if, if he knows now that they're off and it's going to take an hour and a half, but they haven't landed yet. Mm-hmm. Right, but he, they intentionally set it up so that it would look like they were off course so they had more time to get a plane away from the capsule before the recovery crews find it. Yeah, I guess I'm just saying that I don't know how they're going to drop them out of a plane into a capsule. <laughs> Just jump out and parachute into that little triangle that's there. Close it up from the outside. Yeah, I don't know. On approach, though, they suddenly get notice on one of their monitors of a heat shield separation, and the entire room jumps into action. Brubaker's vitals are suddenly flatlining, and the crew are not responding to any transmissions. The other men are also flatlining, and more and more alarm bells join the cacophony. Calloway picks up a red phone to make an important call, and we hear Paul Cunningham transmit details of the malfunction. The plane touches down back at the same abandoned-looking building where they went after the launch. So I have a question here for you. Yeah. Do you think Calloway knew that this was coming? Yes. Or are you sure? Because I feel like his face, to me, indicates like, oh, shit. It has to. They're... Where they're going to kill them because I feel like he's being lied to too by someone. Well, because because why get them on the plane and have the plane take off only to circle back around and bring them back? I I think he knew that this was the plan if they got uncomfortable with what Brolin was doing. But so. that still doesn't explain why they load the astronauts into a plane. See, I'm wondering if the so so the 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 capsule is coming back, right? Like there is They're going to drop one. There yeah, yeah no, they, there's not there's nothing in space that's returning. There is nothing in space that's returning. Okay, so It blew up before it even got to Mars. Okay. Well, no, th- my understanding was like the life support system would fail. Oh, sure, yeah. Would the whole thing blow up? Would the thing not return? It depends on what kind of a failure they were talking about. Yeah, I guess that's my question. So I'm like, was this a sort of thing that something was returning and the heat shield failed and they had to go with this plan because nobody could have survived that? Oh, I don't know. Or did did somebody higher up decide that they had to kill these guys and they failed the heat shield intentionally? Yeah. Or my, my reading did of it Caulfield has, know the whole time? My reading of it has always been that this was a reaction to... Brolin getting weird on them and from what they overheard about him wanting to tell his family the truth um I I think that they were bothered also by that last conversation that he had with his wife because they could see something was up in her reaction I guess I I and I believe that 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 was the moment that they maybe that somebody decided I just don't know that Caulfield knew I think like when 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 the you mean uh Callaway sorry yeah Callaway when that Callaway knew because it, just his reaction here he's like you know I think they are friends of his like he says they go they go way back so that's that's entirely possible 
So they just didn't, like, somebody higher up decided that this was the way it was going down. And the second he saw the heat shield failing, he was like, uh, he knew we had, they, they had that, to die. That means they made the decision, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because cause they were, because if you were going to kill them no matter what, there's no point in doing this uh, charade of getting them on a plane. But I hadn't considered the possibility that they were going to take them out to a capsule in the water from from the original launch that just didn't have a life support system. Right. And that unexpectedly the heat shield separated. That well that that's what I assumed had happened because I didn't think that the ship actually blew up because right. I thought that people were getting signals from this thing the entire time. Yeah. Callaway enters a press briefing to make an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a brief statement and then I will answer your questions. Back in the same waiting room as before, Brubaker tells his friends that the story must be that something happened during re-entry. Brubaker has determined that the official story is that they've died, and he's even figured out exactly what they will claim. And if it never landed, either the heat shield separated or the chutes never opened. Either way, we are dead. So, right. So I, think I don't that, know if that means I think that, that confirms the fact that the ca- capsule actually landed. And, I, and the other reason that I thought that that was the more ingenious plan was because you have a capsule that has evidence of having gone to space and come back. And the only thing that was missing was the people and we're going to drop the people in. Right. That makes sense. Calloway tells the press that the entire craft was incinerated within 12 seconds of the heat shield separation. Naturally, if any of them ever shows their face in public, the whole thing unravels. So the plan must be to execute all three of them here. Brubaker has convinced the men to attempt an escape, at which point they confirm that the room they are in is locked. Brubaker uses his St. Christopher medal from his necklace to pry the hinge pin from the door and take it out of the frame. They actually get the whole way out of the hangar and approach a man waiting with a jet outside. They beat him up and steal the plane. See, and and this is where, like, as a henchman, my concern would be, it's like, oh, we're going to be ordered to kill these guys to keep the secret. It's like, but we also know. Like, like... It's like yeah, but also like you can go back to your life and not be accused of having faked the moon landing. That's true. These guys can't. But yeah. but you're still a loose end. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But well, everybody's a loose end. Every it, it's that it's the astronaut pointing a gun at another astronaut yeah. meme. But there's just a line of six thousand astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking more of the uh, Benjamin Franklin quote. Uh, the only way three people can keep a secret of two of them are dead. Yeah. Yeah. But it occurs to me still that if. If this is the actual capsule returning, this wasn't intentional. I don't think they necessarily chose to kill these guys. They had to once the the failure happened. Right, yeah, but it forced w- their hand. Right, which is why I think Calloway looked the way he did when he got that news, when he started to realize what was happening. He's yeah. like, well, now, now we have to kill my friends. But on the other side, he has to at least be happy that he took them out of the thing. <laughs> because otherwise they'd be dead already. Yeah, they, they was would have killed. Well, they would have died before this moment. Yeah, probably. Yeah. The three astronauts beat up the guard and steal the plane. The press asks if this is the end of manned space flights, but Callaway assures them that this is not the first setback of the program, and they cannot accept defeat so easily. Quitting now would be an insult to their sacrifice. A car blocks the runway in front of the hijacked plane, and Walker, a.k.a. O.J. Simpson, tries to yank the stairs back up into the plane for takeoff, but they seem jammed. He eventually gets the stairs up just before they take off, but they break off their left landing gear on the windshield of one of the cars blocking their path, and we cut back to the briefing. 
I ask you, I ask all of you here, you be the ones to tell me, how could we best serve these men? By giving up on their dream? By saying that it was all for nothing? The crew makes plans to land anywhere they can touch base with the public or press, and Brubaker worries that their families might be better off if they stayed dead. I'm wondering uh, if that landing gear coming off was intentional. Oh, because you don't think they hit the car on purpose? I, I don't know, because it plays no part right, yeah. in well, the Well, their plot. landing's rougher than it ought to be. But yeah, they but were going to land with two wheels on dirt anyway. Yeah. Also, I get really mad. Like, is Okay, so they, you know, they're... they're Pilots, they're astronauts, so they yeah. know, piloting crafts is pretty. You know. But they didn't check the fuel gauge before they took. Well, off. they didn't check the fuel gauge. But you're you're in a rush. I what get that. What are you going to do? But also stop and fill it up, Richard. Start pooping <laughs> into it. <laughs> well, but but what was the what was the plan for the plane? It can't leave no matter what. Yeah, they're going to shoot you down for sure. Um, but also, uh, is there not a radio on the plane? Isn't that like pretty? It standard? depends on how far out they are. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that they weren't even trying to get on a radio at all, I yeah. was just like, ah, come on. They soon learn that the plane is out of fuel, and they'll have to land wherever they can find level ground. They find a flat field and touch down safely in the dirt, or as safely as could be expected in their situation. It shot really well, because they're clearly landing on a... On a runway on behind, a, uh, yeah. yeah. on a tarmac. But they're throwing up a lot of dirt. Right, but the the way they film it is like there's just a, a just a little bit of a ridge... Yeah. In front of the, the, in the foreground. So it just looks like it's landing in the dirt. On the plane, they find a survival kit with three cans of water, three flares, a mirror that Brolin breaks into three parts, and a gun. It's like, that's pretty convenient that this is all divisible by three. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the gun. Brew offers the others the gun first. I'd shoot my foot. I'd shoot his foot. The men decide to split up and maximize their chances of success. They head north, south, and west because east would be a waste of time. We cut back to mission control and play back the call with the families, and as the camera backs up, we see Caulfield is watching the footage and makes note of Kay Brubaker's reaction to the Yosemite bit. I, I was like, wait. Who's showing you this footage? Well, who's showing you this footage? But more to the point, someone just tried to kill you. Did they stop trying to kill yeah. you? Or have you driven off bridges every day for the last <laughs> yeah. five months? I, I thought when when we see him swim away, I thought, oh, he's going to go into hiding. He has to go into hiding. hiding. Yeah, that's what I thought too. <laughs> but here he is. He's just standing. He's yeah, been doing he's in his, his apartment job. later. He's just hanging out. He's living his best life. <laughs> I, I guess when someone tries to kill you, you just yeah. live every day like it's your last. Yeah. We cut from here to the Brubaker home where Kay is reading Fox and Socks to her children. It's bothering me how much she's getting wrong, but she's grieving. <laughs> <laughs> The next day, the men are still walking through the desert heat, and we see Brew tearing his uniform into strips to fashion a bandana. Caulfield makes a visit to the Brubaker home and knocks on the door. He's greeted by a security guard who tells him Kay is unavailable, but he says, I have an appointment. Why would the government let you make an appointment with this woman if they know that you know the secret? Yeah. He joins her on the backyard patio and asks about her reaction to the Yosemite question. Well, it's all so silly wasn't anything that dramatic. Brew just forgot something, that's all. I don't see the purpose in broadcasting that my husband made a mistake about a vacation. Caulfield assures her that this is not for broadcast. It's not for an interview. He just wants to solve a personal mystery. I wouldn't be surprised if his turn in The Long Goodbye didn't land him this role because he's being very Philip Marlowe here. With yeah. Him. She explains that the trip was to Flat Rock, not Yosemite, and the misstatement is nothing to take too seriously. 
Back at the crash site, two OH-6 Cayuse helicopters find the hijacked plane in the desert and immediately phone it into Callaway. Caulfield parks his car in a Wild West town and flat. Oh, sorry. Oh, um, so these two helicopters become like my favorite second, like, <laughs> like secondary characters hand, because, like, they they're hovering around and when they get the call to to split up, they look at each other and kind of almost nod and yeah. then like, continue flats on. Flats them and jets them. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very much like that. Yeah, like the whole time, whenever they're appearing, they're like so menacing. Also, why are they in the same place the whole time? You only have two helicopters. You can't send that many more because yeah. But if you need to search the widest possible area, they should not be right next to each other the whole this whole time. time. Mm-hmm. Also, but yeah, like I like I like the fact that they kind of turn and like confirm like yeah. with each other. They didn't land. No, they didn't. They didn't look <laughs> in the plane. They're like it's empty. Oh, there's no one there. No one there. They just fly off. They didn't land at any point and search the plane. <laughs> they got a big glass plane so they could see the whole way through it. <laughs> it would have been actually it would have been really great cinematically if they just went. <laughs> Just like this opened up fire on the it's plane. It's empty. <laughs> what is a gun? <laughs> Caulfield parks his car in a wild west town in Flat Rock, Arizona. When he stops to read a sign, two gunshots ricochet off a wall beside him and he dives to the dirt. Are these the same assassins? I told you we should have bought more than three bullets. Let's just grab him. Look, these are scientists. They're not good at killing people. I don't understand. <laughs> We hear tires squeal as a car peels out and he flees the scene. Sorry. (laughs) My God, we're the U.S. military. Killing people is supposed to be our job. (laughs) (laughs) We cut back to the desert and the helicopters fly dangerously close to one another and even turn face-to-face needlessly to pantomime communication. They pass over a dirt ridge and when they sound gone, Brew shakes off the dirt and continues moving. We see an insert that he has left the gun behind. This is irrelevant. Yeah, I do. I, I do like this though. He's obviously the the best survivalist of, right, of yeah. the three of them. But I think they all should have maybe talked about the fact that they should roll in dirt a little bit. They're yeah. wearing bright white flight suits. <laughs> if you hear helicopters coming, hide. Callaway stops by to visit Kay. She tells him that her son Charles is taking the news like a champ, but she hasn't told her daughter Sandy yet. They kiss on the lips. Yeah, that's. That's what I do when I, very, I see Brenda. It's very European. <laughs> I was like, he you comes. Wouldn't in, understand, Richard. <laughs> he just comes in and he kisses her on the lips. I was like, that's when I was like, oh, oh. yeah. I was like, is she having a thing with this guy? No, no, she she's not. <laughs> she had her husband <laughs> incinerated <laughs> for that Holbrook dong. Oh. <laughs> Hell, Hell's Holbrook. <laughs> Hell's whole brick. <laughs> what? That's gross. That's gross, Richard. Why would you say oh, that? Man. There's so many, there's so many like shuttle and launch analogies we could be putting in here. That's not good. Capricorn one. <laughs> Callaway tells her the memorial will be Tuesday in Houston, and the president will be there to make a speech. He begs her to attend, but she's clearly not interested. She asks if Bruce's death was a painful one, and he assures her it wasn't. He died doing what he wanted to do. Something he felt was important enough to die I know, I know. I don't think it was important enough for him to die for. She agrees to go, but only for Bruce's sake. We cut back to Walker in the desert suffering from dehydration. He faints coming down a hill and rolls end over end into a dry riverbed. Wait, just wanted to go back to that scene where he's visiting her. Yeah. So she, I think he asks how the kids are doing. Yeah. And he, and she's like, oh, Charles is fine. And I forget the daughter's name. Sandy. Sandy. Sandy doesn't know. Yeah. She literally says Sandy doesn't know. Yeah. She hasn't told her. But Sandy's littler. She's not that little. 
You see her at the funeral. This is like a six, seven-year-old child. I can beat the shit child. out of that kid. That kid was <laughs> tiny. I'm just saying, like, you're literally asking her to go to a memorial that's like, what, two days away? Yeah. And the kids are there at the, spoiler yeah, alert, the kids attend earshot. the memorial oh, yeah, with yeah, her. Yeah. And I'm like, she doesn't know her dad's dead. You're about to take her to the memorial? <laughs> yeah, it's like in Tim where they were like, can you watch Sandy while we go to dad's funeral? <laughs> He faints coming down a hill and rolls end over end into a dry riverbed. He crawls along the path of it in the hopes he'll find water somewhere. He digs into it with a small mirror shard and finds nothing. He cries out for his wife Elizabeth and uses her memory to push himself forward. He sees birds ahead and keeps pushing toward them until suddenly they are helicopters and he is caught. He leans back against a rock formation and accepts defeat. He fires off his flare and Willis and Brubaker both see it from their positions. Calloway gets the call about Walker and guesses correctly that if Walker was north of the plane, that the other two are the same distance to the south and west. Caulfield appears again at the Brubaker home, and he seems a welcome face here. She guesses that he's here with more questions and still won't tell her what he suspects. Now he, he really shouldn't have been allowed to talk Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Like with, with two attempted assassinations. At least, yeah, that we've seen. He confesses that he has a wild imagination, and if he tells her his suspicions, she might throw him out, or worse, believe him, and eventually be wrong. He tells her that Brew knew the difference between Flat Rock and Yosemite, and that the apparent mistake was an intentional clue. He asks what they did in Flat Rock. She offers to share some home movies from the trip. Apparently, a film was being shot in town while they were there, and Brew got to see the actors playing cowboys shooting at each other in a fake Wild West town, which Brolin was also invited to do four years earlier in Michael Crichton's Westworld. Brew was fascinated with the detail. He couldn't get over how something so fake could look so real. He kept on saying that with that kind of technology, you could convince people of almost anything. Anyway, what do you think that has to do with this Mars landing? <laughs> As she says this, the camera pushes slowly into Caulfield's face. We cut back to the desert the next day, and Willis is trying to climb a steep rock and telling himself jokes. Willis barely has enough strength to climb, and when he gets over the top, he finds the helicopters are there waiting for him. And the joke is essentially like, a guy's brother says, hey, your cat died, and he's like, well, you should have told me that in a nicer way. Like, mm -hmm. your cat got out on the roof, and it was chasing squirrels, and it fell off, and we took it to the vet, and they did everything they did, but it died. And he's like, thank you. And how's mom? Uh, she's on the roof. That's the joke. <laughs> I don't know if that means that she hasn't died yet, but she's about to, or if he's going to tell the rest of the story. Yeah, he's easing into it. The joke is that she's already dead. Well, she's on the roof chasing squirrels. Where'd she go? I guess she's downstairs now. Bruce sees a second signal flare go up and understands that he is the last one. Calloway gets another call. He sends the rest of the search team west after Brew. Caulfield approaches his editor with the first hint of his bombshell story, and their interactions are very reminiscent of those between Richard Libertini and Chevy Chase and Fletch. Listen, I think I got something. You need a dermatologist? <laughs> I love this character, and I wish he was in more of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's basically just this scene and a, and a short bit later. I have to talk to you. I think I'm on to something. It could be your actual ball game. I mean it. Golly, gee, Scoop, that sounds very interesting. Something's wrong. Something big. They know I'm on to it, and they try to kill me. Who's they? can't tell you why not you wouldn't believe me you don't think so uh <laughs> this goes on and on at first i was getting frustrated with it but then uh when he says you know what the editor's supposed to say give 48 yeah, hours yeah. like it's like i saw the movie too he only gave him 24 <laughs> <Yeah>. hours <laughs> 
He tells him about the disappearance of his friend Elliot Witter, and the editor still thinks Caulfield is blowing smoke. It sounds like this is largely Caulfield's own fault in a sort of boy-who-cried-wolf way. Several of his incredible scoops in the past have been duds. He assigns Caulfield to a propane train derailment in Galveston instead of giving him any leeway on the NASA story. Look, when a reporter tells his assignment editor that he thinks he may be onto something that could be really big, the assignment editor is supposed to say, you got 48 hours, kids, and you better come up with something good or it's going to be your neck. That's what he's supposed to say. I saw it in a movie. Get your ass on that plane. I can't. I have to follow this. The editor is eventually talked into Caulfield's script, but only offers 24 hours. Not 48. I saw the movie too. It was 24. That night, Caulfield is alone at his place when a team of federal agents burst in with a warrant to search the apartment. They keep him at gunpoint throughout the search. They plant a small container of cocaine in his bathroom. It's the same move we saw the cops pull on Elliot Gould's Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye, and they do it again to Fletch, a classic trope. Not a movie trope, a policeman trope. <laughs> Caulfield's editor bails him out, but only to protect their publication's reputation. As they walk, editor Laughlin quotes Northside 777 and credits a line to Alan Hale Jr., but Caulfield points out it was Jimmy Stewart. It's at this point that Alan Hale says to Richard Conti, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, yeah, Jimmy Stewart, thank you. Look, Scoop, I can't keep bailing you out of trouble. The front office is on my neck. I don't know how much longer I can keep them off, right? Right. Wrong. I got you out of there so as not to embarrass the network. I mean, you are a schmuck. I can't trust you to cover a fire. You'd probably fall down and get burned. You probably would be the cause of it. A company car, you're fired. Before they've even left the building, Caulfield is formally fired. Do you guys recall the last time that someone was fired right on the verge of solving a mystery? Nope. Robert, Robert Duvall. Oh, I was going to say, was it the long goodbye? Nope. <laughs> uh, the um, the D.B. Cooper. The pursuit of D.B. Cooper. He wasn't solving a case. He already he had already solved it. Yeah, but he didn't have the guy in the money. That's true. And then... He had the loot. The second the after he got fired, he hung up the phone and he went back to the gas station attendant and the guy was like, yeah, he went that way. He's right over there. Go get him. Outside the station, Caulfield has to call Karen Black's Judy Drinkwater character to come give him a ride home. Apparently, in addition to the ride, he has also asked for her to research bases near enough the launch site to have housed some kind of cover-up operation. And it wasn't easy. It took exhaustive research. Well, I'm proud of you. How many? One. White Bluff. It's a sack base. My father used to be stationed there. That's exhaustive research. The only base besides White Bluff is Jackson, an abandoned World War II base, but for now, she's offering coffee and sex. They can look at bases tomorrow. Instead, he asks for all the cash she has on her and her car for the night. The next day, we see Brew hiking again, and the choppers are closing in. He finds a small cave in the rocks to stow away, and as he backs up to the wall behind him, he nearly sets his hand down on a rattlesnake. Brolin's character in Westworld was bit by a rattlesnake a few years earlier, and it turns out to be a defective robotic rattlesnake, but this one's real. He slips off his bandana and wraps up his hand, and then reaches for a rock with his other hand. He lets the snake bite the wrapped hand, and then clobbers it with a rock. Then he slices the snake open with a mirror shard, and chews its guts out. The guts here are being played by raw fish, which is slightly less disgusting, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> his face is still covered in dirt. Yeah. Caulfield pulls up to the big hangar at the abandoned Jackson base. Insanely, the door is unlocked, yeah. and the power is still running to the interior lights. He flicks them on, and these are the only lights that should ever have been on when they weren't shooting. Right. Uh, the Martian set is gone, but there's still lots of red sand in the corner of the room. 
In the sand, he finds a necklace with a St. Christopher medal, and when he turns it over, it's engraved Brew from K. Insanely lazy of the people, no doubt, in charge of clearing this area when they vacated the base. Mm. But I guess if there's only like three of them, they're like, fuck, we're going to be here forever if we scoop all of this sand. Let's just leave a lot of it here. Let's just, let's just spray paint it white. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's the color it was when we got we it. We ran out of floorboards, so we painted the dirt. Pretty <laughs> clever. <laughs> That night, Brew stumbles through a terrible windstorm in the dark and picks a random place to rest. In the morning, Caulfield pulls up to a crop dusting service, offering to rent a plane. The owner, Albane, played by Telly Savalas, says he intended to co-own the business with his son, but his son didn't want to fly planes, so now his kid is a pervert lawyer. <laughs> because everyone this guy doesn't like is a pervert. Yeah. He tells Caulfield it's 25 to dust a field, but he ain't no farmer, so it's 100. Caulfield pulls out the cash and the price jumps to 125 since he didn't flinch at 100. <laughs> I would have crop dusted for him way cheaper than yeah. that. I just had a big burrito. I'll get you right now. They leave to search for Brew, and I have no idea why NASA doesn't have 100 helicopters out here looking for the man, because it would be much worse if anyone else found Brew first. We cut to Brew sleeping in the sun with a scorpion crawling on his face. He jumps up and shakes it off before continuing his directionless hike. I was trying to do like a desert bingo and i was like okay rattlesnake scorpion we gotta get a tarantula in there yep, somewhere somewhere he notices a small gas station about 100 feet behind him he stumbles over to it but there's nobody here he drinks from a sitting trough of water we cut to Kay brubaker's home where she and her children are being picked up and driven to a funeral two of them know where they're going Brew breaks a lock off a door to enter the gas station office and use the phone on the wall. Should but call him Brew ba Breaker. Oh. <laughs> but why would there be a payphone in the office? I guess you just had to pay at every phone. Yeah. Brew breaks into a Coke machine and dumps out some coins to make a call with. He calls his own home, but his whole family is away at his funeral. When Brew sees the choppers coming, he tries to hide inside, and Caulfield orders his pilot to land here. The pilots of the choppers approach the gas station and look through the windows into the place. This made me mad. Uh, the, I, I didn't want the helicopters to be actually piloted by people. You wanted like, them to stay helicopters. To stay helicopters. You're much more entertaining characters yeah. than you're just helicopters. The pilots of the choppers approach the gas station and look through the windows into the place. Albane, the crop duster pilot, says that he wants half of whatever loot Caulfield is expecting out of this operation. Brew hides with a crowbar ready to strike and hits one of them in the head before running out to the road. One of the helicopter pilots. Yeah. He sees Caulfield. <laughs> just <laughs> he just Caulfield. hits Telly Savalas in the head and he dies. <laughs> That's not what happened. He sees Caulfield reaching out of the passing biplane motioning for Brew to climb on board, and he does, even as the chopper pilot is shooting at them. The choppers gear up to chase them as Brew lays down on the wing with Caulfield holding on tight. The pilot speeds off and the choppers stay right on his tail, even firing on the man with onboard machine guns. Yeah. Like, wow, they thought really far ahead on this. Well, um, on closer inspection, the onboard machine guns are just, just a flashing it's light. It's just a flashing light. Yeah. It looks really bad in yeah. the, like a high resolution. <laughs> yeah. I guess this is probably a good place to talk about it. What do you think happened to Willis and Walker? Do you think they were brought back to the base for now? Or do you think they were just killed when they were found? Oh, just killed in, like, just d holes dug in the desert? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I would just leave them in the desert. N nothing's going to find them in there. I feel like it would make more sense to bring them back to the base. Why? Because if Brew gets out and the secret gets out, then you're not being held for conspiracy to commit murders. Mm. Mm. 
also, I guess it's just you're just defrauding the public. Yeah, I guess also there there is the risk of like, you know, a hundred years from now, someone digging up a corpse and finding a nasty uniform. Yeah, like still in the dirt. Yeah, that space age material really right? lasts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dog tags and everything. Like, wow, he must have landed here after the thing vaporized in the sky. He just fell underground. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's how hard he hit the earth. That's what they. That's what they do. They just incinerate Throw them the, in the ocean. No, they just incinerate the bodies here yeah. on the ground. So if anyone does find them, it's like, oh, this is must be where the Look, body came that's the down. The red powder. They chase the biplane into a canyon. The stunt flying here is insane, mm-hmm. especially because there really seems to be a man riding on the wing of the plane for all of it. But it might be a dummy because some of this stuff looks just impossible to shoot and not just throw the guy off of the plane yeah on the insert shots of brolin holding on like his hands are bleeding because he's holding yeah. on to the wires yeah. so hard the stunt pilot frank tallman admitted that the stunts in this film were among the most dangerous of his entire career and maybe the most dangerous in any film sadly tallman didn't live to see his work on screen because he crashed a twin engine piper aztec in the santa Ana mountains a couple months before the film's release oh no the choppers continue firing on the plane, and when he notices they are directly above him, the choppers start banging their skids against his wings. The pilot tells Caulfield to pull the lever to dust crops and releases a lot of smoke in the face of the choppers, who are blinded and then crash face first into the rock wall of the canyon. It's a really good crash. It is. It's so good. Yeah. They, they did- I feel like they wanted them to explode in a ball of fire, and the first one doesn't explode at all. Yeah. It just hits and breaks apart. But in the second one, it hits, and then... On a bounce, it explodes. Yeah. And it looks really good. Yeah. The the way they just crumple into the mountain. Was yeah. Like, yeah it, not everything is a big Hollywood fireball. Yeah. You know, but uh, it, there's even, like, I think, like, what you're saying, though, is true because as far as it was supposed to explode. Yeah. Because in the debris field, there's this giant tank of fluid yeah. that's f- falling out of the helicopter. Yeah. I was like, I bet that was. <laughs> they must have just refueled. Mm-hmm. Remember, I get half. We cut away to the president's speech at Brubaker, Willis, and Walker's joint funeral. Is it the president or is it the vice president again? I, I think it's the president. I thought it would have been funny if they said the <laughs> vice president again to the funeral. Like, lol, fuck you guys. The cemetery is now the site of a new eternal flame labeled the men of Capricorn 1 and their names. During the speech, Drinkwater's car comes racing through the cemetery. There's no way that this car would get anywhere near a funeral that the president yeah. was attending. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a movie, so I'll give it a break. It's fun. We're having fun, right? It, it would have been better. I know they couldn't have gotten permission to crash a plane into a cemetery. Oh, my God. It, yeah. But it would have been More fun. believable. Yeah, because like, then he could get around any kind of yeah. ground security. I know it's a no-fly zone around the president, but this is the 70s, yeah. you know? You get that scene from The Mummy where- the old guy crashes the oh. biplane and then he just sinks into quicksand. <laughs> yeah, until the boss is dead. Yeah. But it just sinks into a he grave. He sinks into a grave that they dug the night before. And then you look up and it says Telly Savalas on the tombstone. What the hell? Why is he at a military graveyard? <laughs> How do they know? Uh, he may have served. I don't actually know. Yeah. Caulfield and Brubaker step out of the car and march toward the eulogy in slow motion as people start to realize who has just arrived not just slow motion yeah it's, it's like, like the jittery every, step slow motion it, it's like it's like two frames per second it's but it's the we shot at 24 we, frames per second and, and didn't know we, it was and we didn't know we needed this much footage for this shot yeah, yeah because they keep cutting back and forth to the audience who's not in slow yeah, motion they're, they're like oh he's on martian time still <laughs> <laughs> he's stuck in that slow-mo edit <laughs> it's a time dilation yeah. <laughs> 
Charles and Sandy notice before Kay, and she can hardly believe it herself. Understandably, everyone's losing their shit. Brew is so dirty here that I wouldn't blame some of the mourners for assuming he just somehow survived when the ship exploded. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel worse for Willis and Walker's wives, who are surely expecting their husbands to come out of the car next. <laughs> Instead, they're just out in the desert somewhere, next to a flare gun. Calloway is here, and he knows he's completely fucked. The end. Yeah. We freeze frame on this awkward, dirty yeah. face of, of James Brolin. I, it's, a, it's a little unsatisfying because I really want... I really wanted, like, the hug with him and Kay, at least. Yeah, and you want to see some justice. Yeah. You want to see some cuffs. Yeah, or, maybe. Or, well, if not that, if not seeing a little bit of wrap-up to see somebody at least a little sure. bit in trouble, I wanted the government to win. I wanted yeah. them to just kill everybody, yeah. and you're just like, oh, fuck. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> He's, like, almost within eyesight, and then mm-hmm. someone just shoots him in the head. Well, and, but even before that, it's just like they all got found. They all yeah. got killed. And you're just like, after all that, yeah. the government kept it under wraps. Mm. That would be good. I, I would have liked to have gotten Brolin to back to Brubre- K. Brewbreaker. And then we just cut to where Callaway was and he's just running. <laughs> <laughs> running down the graveyard. But it's in fast motion now yeah. instead of slow motion. To make up for the... <laughs> yeah, exactly. What? <laughs> It's got, it's got to balance out. Yeah. Do you think he's the mastermind behind all this, no. though? No, I mean, no. he's not. I don't think. I think he's as much. He, he got screwed. Well, I think, but he's as much being manipulated in this situation as they are. I yeah. think yeah. that they could be threatening his family's lives. He, he might have avoided this by not pushing so hard to protect the program that he guaranteed that this mission would go off without a hitch. But the second that Con Amalgamate fucked up their delivery, he was he was screwed. There was nothing he could do. He had to choose between talking his friends into faking this landing or killing NASA completely and never working for the space program again. I I was trying to think of an angle where the president was the mastermind and this was all part of a re-election. When he doesn't want to show up. Uh, Yeah, like like this was like the whole whole plan. So it was like when Kennedy promised we'd get there by the end of the 60s. Yeah. This guy was like, well, I promised we'd get to Mars by this time. Yeah. Um, You know, but, you know, we lost our lives, but, you know, the American spirit and all that, like, yeah. like that. This was somehow going to bolster him up, but it, yeah. I couldn't really kind of make it work in my head. But obviously, we know that Capricorn did land on Mars, and that this movie is just a conspiracy theory of what may have happened. In the movie Sound of Thunder, Charles Hatton at the beginning of the film makes a speech, and he says, "Today, you stood shoulder to shoulder with Columbus discovering America, Armstrong stepping on the moon, Rue Baker landing on Mars. You are true pioneers on the very last frontier, time." So apparently they do cover it all up mm. in the in the Hyams verse. Mm. So they're just like, oh, my God, he survived. Can you believe it? Uh, airbags in the capsule. <laughs> Sprinkler system in the back seat. Can you believe it? Yeah, that's probably what happened. Okay, will you play Nintendo with me? Yeah, uh, big thumbs up for me. I love this movie. Yeah, I had a really good time. Actually, my memory of it was that the helicopter chasing in the desert was like 99% of the movie. <laughs> and so in my head, I was like, I feel like this was one of those ones where I really liked the concept, but then the execution bored me, and it did not at all. When I when I was rewatching it, I was like, oh, no, this is actually pretty awesome the whole way through. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I had never seen it before. I enjoyed it. We mentioned it earlier. The only weird thing is that it's such a – I mean, it's not a big star cast, but they're – definitely names of people who are known yeah you know uh like karen black and huddleston is like none of these characters really have any kind of 
thing to do. Yeah, each of them did maybe a day yeah. on set. It's like, what did, what did Huddleston's character even provide to the story? And I, I read somewhere that he's a senator. Right. But it's like, is that really implied enough in the story? It just seems like he's someone higher up at NASA, but I'm mm-hmm. assuming he's a Florida senator. Or a Texas because they're, they're in Texas. Oh, right. Yeah, sorry. Because they're with Houston. Yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. When they disappear Elliot, that seems to be like the most complicated thing because there's all kinds of other technicians who know that he exists. Right, Who yeah. aren't in on Elliot wasn't in on it. So that means all the other technicians that were working in that room were not in on it. Right. So when Elliot suddenly disappears and then everyone, what, Hal Holbrook would just go, I don't know who Elliot is. I've never heard of this guy. Yeah. Like, you can't do that to all these people because they know him. Yeah. Maybe they don't, weird. though. Maybe he specifically kept that guy separate from everybody <laughs> he just kept so him. that nobody would know his name. And, and that woman who lives at the apartment, if I was Caulfield during all those months, I would have shown up every day. Yeah. Just, just, just you still make, live here? You just, still live here? Just to make sure that this woman can't do anything else with her life. Did she just hang out? Did they just say, hey, live here? and we'll send you money to just live here. Yeah, but you have to say that you've lived here for over a year yeah. because that's what we're going to set up for yeah, you. Yeah, and the apartment complex will have records proving that you've paid your rent here for over a year. Also, we've bribed the yeah. neighbors. Yeah, so now Elliot's landlord, who hated him already, yeah. helped to get him killed and is getting money out of it. Yeah, there's way too many, like, you're involving, you keep involving people who don't need to yeah. be involved. yeah. Just keep blowing Elliot off. He's not telling anybody important. Yeah, he's only telling you guys over and over again. Just be like, yeah, that's weird. That's a bug. But the problem is that he was telling Caulfield. Well, I think that... I'm sorry to be a terrible person to think this way. Wouldn't it be easier to just incapacitate him mentally than to disappear him? And just be like, "Mm, he doesn't know how to speak anymore. He's brain dead. What happened? Yeah, other than have to go through all this elaborate setup, erasing him, like, his birth records and all that stuff. Yeah. Or just stop cheaping out on your Caulfield assassins because nobody (laughs) else fucking cares except for this one reporter who you insist on not hitting with your bullets. (laughs) Just fucking kill the guy already. He didn't try very hard. And he's a big guy. Took a couple of shots and ran away. Yeah. How did they know he was going to be at Flat Rock? I think they followed him. They listened to his whole conversation with a woman who he should never have been able to get in to see. <laughs> they were like, oh, I guess he's going to Flat Rock now. We'll follow him. But why go to Flat Rock? What was he What was he hoping to even find there? He was looking for the Flat Rock Candy Mountains. Like, if they had gone to Disneyland, would he have, would he have oh, gone to on. Disneyland to try to investigate? I think he's you just, just see him eating a churro and a bullet ricochets off of the wall. The same reason when he finally goes to talk to her, he's like, show me the movies. You're just like, What? You want to just see the whole movie? I need to see all of them, please. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. I'll take the other ones out. <laughs> it's just them fucking. <laughs> Got to watch it all for clues. Just in case. <laughs> they call me Clue Breaker. Sounds like your husband's name. <laughs> Capricorn One, ladies and gentlemen. Was that three thumbs up? Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. And it was funny because we just, oh, I know you're just about to. To read off a list of names, so I should sure, probably yeah. just shut up and say it. But because we were just talking about Peter Hyams. Shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were. That is true. Our writer-director here was Peter Hyams. Uh, he previously wrote T.R. Baskin, which also features Con Amalgamate and uh, Peter Boyle working for Con Amalgamate. Um, and then later he directed Busting 
He wrote and directed Busting. Uh, he also directs Outland, The Star Chamber, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, Running Scared, Time Cop, and End of Days. The music here was from Jerry Goldsmith. He's the composer of the first James Bond adaptation climax episode, Casino Royale, in 1954. He also scored In Like Flint, This, The Boys from Brazil, The Swarm, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Magic, Alien, Gremlins 1 and 2, Explorers, Interspace, Matinee, and The Burbs for Joe Dante. Uh, which Running Scared did uh, Peter Himes write? The Billy Crystal. Okay. Yeah. Secret of Nim, Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, so far, we've discussed his work in The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Cabo Blanco, Omen 3, Outland, and Raggedy Man. And some of his work for this movie was actually reused in the score for Star Trek Insurrection. Do you recognize any of it? Um, It's been a while since I've listened to the full score for Insurrection. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Wait, you said you said magic too. Wasn't that the one that we watched? Yeah. Anthony Hopkins yeah. and the Dummy. Yeah, and the Dummy. Love that so one. So great. Uh, cinematographer here was Bill Butler. He was the DP of The Conversation, Jaws, This, Damien, Omen Two, Grease, Rocky Two, and so far on the show, Can't Stop the Music. It's my turn in Stripes. Later, Rocky Three, The Sting, Rocky Four, Child's Play, Hot Shots, Anaconda, and many others. The editor here was James Mitchell. He was Hyam's regular editor. He has credits on Busting, Future World, This. We've seen him work on the Gong Show movie, Fade to Black. Later, he cut Star Chamber 2010, Running Scared, Monster Squad for Shane Black. Right? Shane Black wrote that. Uh, Monster think, Squad, yeah. Yeah, it's a Black and Decker. Uh, Elliot Gould played Robert Caulfield. We've seen him so far in MASH, Last Flight of Noah's Ark, Falling in Love Again, The Devil and Max Devlin, and The Long Goodbye. He's also in Little Murders, California Split, The Silent Partner, and The Muppet Movie. More recently, he shows up in the Ocean's Eleven trilogy and as himself in the Simpsons movie. Dustin Hoffman was the first actor sought to play Caulfield, but he had just wrapped all the President's Men the year earlier, and it was essentially, it would be redundant for him to play the exact same part again. Uh, Gould also played the father of Ross and Monica on Friends. He was nominated for an Oscar for Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and he was at the time the ex-husband of Barbara Streisand, who had since remarried James Brolin, who plays Charles Brubaker here. He was John Blaine in Westworld. He shows up as Dr. Kylie in 170 episodes of Marcus Welby, M.D., before showing up in the Amityville Horror in the late 70s. We reviewed his work last year in Night of the Juggler and High Risk. He played Peter McDermott in 115 episodes of Hotel. He played Pee-wee in the film Within a Film in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He's also famously the father of Thanos actor Josh Brolin. And for this part, producers had considered Paul Newman and Charles Bronson, only one of whom, I believe, has astronaut potential. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see Bronson in space. It would be funny if... Uh, Barbara Streisand left James Brolin for Telly Savalas. <laughs> she could have been married to everybody on that plane. Brenda Vaccaro played Kay Brubaker. She was Shirley in Midnight Cowboy, Eve Clayton in Airport 77, and Bianca in Supergirl. We've seen her so far as Monica Gilbert in The First Deadly Sin and Florinda in Zorro the Gay Blade. She also provides the voice of Ardith, Jay Sherman's ex-wife on The Critic. She was the mother of Joey on Friends, so between her and Gould, half of the Friends cast are covered here. She was also nominated for an Oscar for Once Is Not Enough. Sam Waterston played Peter Willis. We had him in Hopscotch and Heaven's Gate so far. He's also in The Great Gatsby, The Killing Fields, for which he was Oscar nominated, a shitload of Law and & Order, and he's a spokesperson for Old Glory Robot Insurance. <laughs> O.J. Simpson played John Walker. Uh, he was a footballer. He played for the Buffalo Bills for a while and maybe some other teams. Who knows? Uh, he had previously shown up in The Towering Inferno, Barely, 
and was cast on the strength of that performance and in the hopes that his successful football career would draw in viewers for television broadcasts because they weren't expecting this to be a moneymaker in theaters. They thought all the money was in the syndication rights. Mm. Uh, he was Detective Norberg in the Naked Gun movies. Peter Hyams did not want O.J. for the role, preferring Robert Hooks or Bernie Casey. Hyams has since joked that O.J. being in this and Robert Blake appearing in his earlier film Busting means that he has directed two leading men who were subsequently tried for the first degree murders of their wives. Yeah. That's his trivia. Hal Holbrook played Dr. James Kellaway. He was Mark Twain on stage a lot. He was Deep Throat in All the President's Men. He played George Washington in John Adams. He played Lincoln in Carl Sandburg's Lincoln and North and South, the Civil War miniseries. He played Francis Preston Blair in Spielberg's Lincoln. He also played Maxwell Monroe, another fictional president, in Under Siege. We saw him last as the American president in The Kidnapping of the President. He's Oscar nominated for his performance in Into the Wild, and he just passed away a couple years ago, 2021 pretty old i think he almost made it to 100 karen black played judy drinkwater she's an easy rider five easy pieces for her oscar nomination day of the locust and family plot she plays different characters in all three segments of trilogy of terror she also plays herself in altman's the player we saw her last in burnt offerings and she sort of reprised the role of miss allardyce by playing a similar character with the same name in 2013's ooga booga she appeared with Waterston in The Great Gatsby, and the Judy Drinkwater part was officially offered to Candace Bergen first, who turned it down, but would work later with Hyams as the voice of Hal 9000's girlfriend, Sal 9000, in 2010, The Year We Make Contact. Telly Savalas played Al Bain. He was Private Seavers in Cape Fear, Fedo Gomez in Birdman of Alcatraz for his Oscar nomination. He was Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Sergeant Joe in Kelly's Heroes. He appears with Elliot Gould in This, Escape to Athena, and The Muppet Movie. Amusingly, this part was written for a different Blofeld, specifically Donald Pleasance. In keeping with the Friends theme, Savalas was the real-life godfather of Jennifer Aniston. He wrapped up his entire part filming in one day. David Huddleston played Hollis Peeker. He was Big Lebowski. He's Olsen Johnson in Blazing Saddles, and we've seen him so far in Gorp and Smokey and the Bandit 2. David Doyle played Walter Laughlin. He's lots of cartoon voices. He appears on Tailspin, Darkwing Duck, Goof Troop, He's W.W. Wacky on Bonkers. He's also Stu Pickles Sr., the grandfather from the Rugrats, but he is likely best known as Bosley from Charlie's Angels, not to be confused with Boswell, the red healer from Road Games. Because <laughs> those are often confused. Very similar, very different. Lee Bryant played Sharon Willis. This was her first film. We've seen her so far as Mrs. Hammond in Airplane, a role she reprises next season in Airplane 2, which also takes place in space. In keeping with the space theme of her credits, she appears in director Robert De Niro's The Good Shepherd as the wife of actor Cure DeLay, who we just had as David Bowman in 2001. Denise Nicholas played Betty Walker. She reunited with Brolin and Bryant on the TV series Hotel. She was also Liz McIntyre in Room 222 and Harriet DeLong Gillespie in In the Heat of the Night. She's also Joan in Ghost Dad. Robert Walden played Elliot Witter. He played Sperm in Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. He also played Fran Drescher's dad in 34 episodes of Happily Divorced. He was also Donald Segretti in All the President's Men with Hal Holbrook. James Sicking played Control Man. We've seen him now in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, The Competition, and in Hyam's Outland, and he's back next for Hyam's The Star Chamber. He's also C. Thomas Howell's dad in Soul Man. Alan Fudge played Capsule Communicator. He's Ed Hobbs in The Natural. He's a loan officer in Edward Scissorhands. 
James Karen played Vice President Price. He also appeared in All the President's Men with Holbrook and Walden. He's Mr. Teague in Poltergeist. He's Frank in Return of the Living Dead 1 and 2. And he's Wally Brown in Mulholland Drive. He played Robert Sanborn in MacGyver episode Fraternity of Thieves. I think that's the guy who collects butterflies mm. and is sending poison around to kill people. Daryl Zwirling played Dr. Bergen. He was Mr. Lynch in Greece and Hollis Mulray in Chinatown. Milton Seltzer, or Selzer, played Dr. Burroughs. He was Izzy in The Lost Amadeus and Romberg in The Wall, which are both MacGyver episodes. <laughs> He's also <laughs> Merlin Kinkle in Tapeheads. Lou Frizzle played Horace Gruning. He was Nat Dearborn on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Barbara Boson played Alva Leacock. She was Jane Rogan in The Last Starfighter. I think that's the mother of the main character, right? Because the kid's name is Alex Rogan, right? So Jane, right, Jane right. Rogan is probably the mom. She appeared with James Sicking on Hill Street Blues, and she makes regular appearances in cop shows Murder One and Cop Rock. John Cedar played FBI Man Number One. He was Hawkins in Death Hunt. Trent Dolan played Man Ed Hanger Number Two. He was Isbell in Sir Lou Grade's Raise the Titanic. Todd Hoffman played NASA Usher. He was The Weenies in Weird Science and Wheels in Meatballs. What is The Weenies? Is that a band? Uh, I don't remember The Weenies I haven't in Weird seen Weird Science. Science recently enough. Kenneth White played Tracking Technician. He was Chester in Up the Academy and Burly Man in Carbon Copy. James Bacon played Reporter Number 4. We saw him last as General Faulkner in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. And he has mostly reporter credits, like here and in Meteor and so far on the show in The Man with Bogart's Face and Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. Ron Cummins played FBI Man Number 2. He was Police Lieutenant in Ghostbusters 2. Dennis O'Flaherty played FBI man number three. He was a writer on eight episodes of the original TMNT series, one episode of Legend of Zelda, four episodes of Captain N, one episode of Batman the Animated Series, one Sonic, one Biker Mice, one Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego, and five Street Sharks. Nice. Good stuff. Good, good, good resume. Yeah. John Davison played reporter uncredited. He was a regular Verhoeven producer for titles like Robocop 1 and 2 and Starship Troopers. He also has producer credits on Piranha, Airplane, White Dog, Twilight Zone, Top Secret, and a 2009 release of Joe Dante's The Movie Orgy. And he's the voice of Ed 209. Oh. He does the voice of the Ed 209 mm. robot. Bob Harks played a reporter. He was the university dean in Forrest Gump and a priest in Flashdance. Monty O'Grady played Ceremony Guest. His credits date back to the mid-20s. He was a guest at Rick's in Casablanca. He's a party guest in Heaven Can Wait. He has a minor role in Giant, Around the World in 80 Days. He's a nightclub patron in Zero Hour. He's a party guest in The Sound of Music, and we saw him last as a diner patron in American Gigolo. Hank Robinson played Reporter. He seems to be an umpire by trade, as he's played one in Brewster's Millions, Naked Gun, and an episode of Quantum Leap. Bob Templeton played military officer. He was a crewman in Night Moves and Prince Carl in Day of the Locust. Arthur Tovey played a spectator. He was Wilbur in Back to the Future. Manny Weltman played reporter, and he was Robbie Miller in Dr. Detroit. I think that's everything for Capricorn One. Thanks again to Louis Letizia for their generous contribution to the show. If you have anything you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you chose. We leave you now with a trailer for Capricorn One. We are T-minus 18 seconds from liftoff. We're T-minus 15 seconds. Would you and your men please follow me? 
Hey, what the hell is this? This is an emergency. Please follow me now. T-minus 10 seconds. 9, 8. We have ignition. 6, 5. We have outboard engines. 3. We have inboard engines. 1, 0. We have a launch commit. We have a liftoff at 35 minutes after the hour. Every split second of this historic flight, every intimate detail, every heartbeat, was monitored by Mission Control in Houston. This is Capricorn 1. We have landed. As millions all over the world watched and listened, the President of the United States spoke to the astronauts across the vastness of space. To the men of Capricorn 1, I bring you greetings from your fellow Americans. There's only one small catch. It never happened. It's all a lie. A fantastic $30 billion hoax. Something's wrong, and I don't know what it is. Dig deep enough, you might uncover the truth. Those signals couldn't have come from 300 miles. But the odds are, you'll never live to tell it. Please! I'm not moving an inch. They're on the plane together! There's a device, it's on the plane! There's some people, if I don't give them the all-clear signal, they'll explode it! Something's wrong, something big. They know I'm onto it and they try to kill me. Who's they? I can't tell you. We are dead. You tell me you're in trouble, you're out on bail, you just got fired, I tell you I'll be right over. My head hurts. You look awful. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. These people are capable of anything. You sound so close. It's hard to believe you really are that far away in space. It's hard for me to believe it, too. You're up to something. You want my help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. Capricorn One, this is Houston. Capricorn One, we show red on the heat shield. One, this is Houston. We show red on the heat shield. Do you read? Pull that lever down by your feet when I tell you, Sonny. Capricorn One, the mission that never got off the ground.